Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Byron Alley. He went to his undergraduate program here from 2014 to 2018, and while he was here, I got to know him because he uh, started a business, and I was really interested in what he was doing. I'll talk about that in a little bit. He's currently in an MBA program, but even while you were in high school, you started working at uh, Hilton Garden Inn while you were in high school. I actually started on a piece of land that was a non-constructed building, and I was kind of like a superintendent slash project manager assistant, kind of like the third guy on the construction site. So I worked there on a construction site. And then once it was open and operating, that's when I saw the opportunity of like, okay, let me kind of work on my sales skills. Let me go be a server in the restaurant. And then from there, I bounced around divisions there. I was in maintenance. Housekeeping was an interesting challenge. I challenge anyone to try to do housekeeping at a hotel. And then (laughs) (laughs) I ended up at front desk. And at front desk is when I learned like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty decent at at least engaging people that don't really want to be engaged in. So how can I sharpen this? Well, skill? you know, it's I'm I was just really impressed that you worked there for two years, well, over two years while you were in high school. I don't normally start there in a conversation like this, but you learned a lot about managing projects and managing people a lot in those uh, those experiences. Definitely. One other thing that really was intriguing to me about you, not long after you moved here. Well, you live in Dallas. You're from Dallas. From Arlington, born and raised. And you came to school here in Fayetteville, and you saw that there was a problem and an opportunity. I did. I did my orientation day. You're alluding to the hog ride, I assume. Yeah. I got a speeding ticket on my way home from orientation <laughs> in June or July. Like, I wasn't even a student yet. I just got my ID. You know, you're just excited. I get pulled over, and of course, you know, my dad's very hardcore, <laughs> I guess is the best G-rated way I can say this. Of course, he was already kind of griping on me, like, you know, you're going to pay for this ticket, so on and so forth. But I noticed when I was sitting on the side in the road in Atoka, Oklahoma, every single car that was passing me had Texas license plates. And half the cars had sorority letters, Razorback stickers. And I'm sitting there waiting for this sheriff to give me a predictable, you know, $200, $300 ticket. I'm like, dang, like, you know, as much as I love to help a municipal court out like Atoka (laughs) County, at the same time, all these students are making the same drive. And of course, when you're fresh from orientation, it feels like, you know, they almost shove it down your throat. You know, we're 40% from Texas. We're 45% of you guys are from, you know, Dallas area. And all the people I just met in my orientation, Richardson, Capel, Allen, Plano, Arlington, Fort Worth. So I was seeing that everybody was from this Metroplex, but we're all 300 miles north. And if flying was that easy, everyone would have been doing it. So that's where the original idea kind of got placed of like, okay, how can I solve this problem? Because it's clearly, there's a problem here. So. In 2016, Byron formed the Hog Ride, and this was his uh, solution to the problem, and he ran that uh, while he was a student here. So, tell us about the Hog Ride and how how it worked. The Hog Ride was, for lack of a better explanation, it was the Uber for long distance transportation. The premise of my business model was I would get a 
fully loaded, fully functional, you know, 56 charter bus. And these buses are the buses you would use for like a high school band trip. It's a charter bus with the screens, you know, luggage goes underneath. I would get that bus and I would run it out for a high volume weekend, say if it was like Thanksgiving or fall break, the A&M weekend in Arlington. And so the hog ride was basically in the same way Uber is, Uber is a brand because, you know, a yellow taxi cab is a yellow taxi cab every day. That's what it is. But if someone gets in their Camry and turns on an Uber app, now it's an Uber. So I was like, well, okay, it can be the hog ride just for this trip. I already know the demand's here, but how do I match that demand with the supply I'm trying to form up? So basically, I would kind of rent out one of those charter buses like I was, you know, a Sunday school leader or some, someone who was organizing it. And then I would turn around and basically do all the metrics and know what my break-even cost would be at so many sales at X, so many sales at Y. I believe the first year we only went to Dallas and back. But from then is when we started seeing, it almost started selling itself in a way. And that's when we started expanding to Austin, expanding to Houston. And that's where a lot of the parents are really, really giddy for it because at this point, their kid's not driving nine or 10 hours or they're not having to fly two flights or something. Now it's like, okay, they'll get here. It might take 10 hours for the kid to get here. But the good news is, of course, since it was a charter bus, you had Wi-Fi, you had, it was a lounge, basically. People, you know, people were chilling. So I originally made it because I knew that those flights from X and A, first of all, you need to have transportation to go up to X and A. So that's a 30, 40 minute car ride. And then you need about 300 to 500, depending on how much you procrastinate, for the ticket to then fly home. Freshman and sophomore year, I wasn't allowed to have a car on campus. I just, that was my parents' rule. So I had friends that could get me to and from Arlington that were from Allen or whatever the case may be. But I knew like, I was created the service because I knew it would help kids like me. But at the same time, I knew that there were people that would take advantage of it who might have had the financial support that were like, you know what, this bus is easier. And then I knew that there were some students to where this being the cost effective scenario was like a ticket for them to get home. And it was crazy as a lot of people use the hog ride not to get to Dallas, but they use it as like the shuttle to get to an international airport. So I had a lot of kids from Brazil or Bolivia who instead of flying to Dallas and then flying out, they're like, oh, we'd much rather ride. It's way cheaper. We'll do homework on this. And then we'll get on our, you know, seven, eight hour flight back home. So it definitely created a lot of opportunities for a lot of people, not just me, the person who put it together. It was, I kind of some days replay the amount of thank yous I got from parents, like to my face and school lots. And it, it definitely is a very rewarding feeling to say the least, because it, it definitely was bigger than me, which was my goal. Did people get to know one another on these trips? Oddly, yes. And the funny part is, from my point of view, I didn't think it would be as much as they did. But I think behind our marketing efforts, the biggest marketer we had were, of course, the students. Because, you know, same thing like an Uber. I wouldn't have trusted Uber if some random guy in an Uber polo handed me some discount brochure outside of my class. Like, you know, what is this? But if a friend was like, oh, no, I've, you know, I've ridden an Uber, we should call one. Then, you know, your incentive is a little different than being cold sold on it. So, I knew at that point that if I take care of the people that trusted me with this, they will take care of me in the long run, which is, you know, telling other, whether it's creating a conversation at Bruff about it or, you know, how students, you know, just whether you guys are working out the hyper and you mentioned how you're getting home or something. So the students surprisingly not only kind of befriended themselves, I saw some students that recognized each other from like B-Law and they're like, oh, you're my B-Law class. Can you come back here and help me with whatever B-Law had going on? It's always a, a, not an easy class, but I've seen students kind of, recognize each other and then even some girls be like oh no like there was a group of four girls that like rode every bus together and like i like recognized them at that point so it was cool and then the cool thing is at the parking ride instead of all four parents coming like one of the moms would pick them up 
they would all crash at one girl's house and then the parents would come. So like, it was like the perfect kind of play for them. So yeah, it, it created relationships. It created opportunities. I'm sure some people got some studying done and it definitely did more than what I thought it would. How about pricing? How did you come up with the price? Pricing at first wasn't as surface as you would think. I knew I had to obviously be cheaper than an X and A flight, but I knew that I couldn't just sit here and gouge every, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling thousand dollar tickets. That's, that's ridiculous. I know we did a pricing analysis at some point with my co-founder, Derek Sams, and he was honestly more of the financial piece for it when we were in that staging of things. But I know that we originally started it at 150 for a round trip, I think. And that was a good price if I already had the trust and loyalty built up. But to really get people on the hook, I took it down to 125 round trip. And then that's what really started incentivizing people to start booking it to Dallas. And I never raised it above that because at that point, the break-evens made sense. I started kind of getting better partnerships with my carrier companies, which I knew eventually that would kind of come to fruition. And so it was honestly, I hate to say it now thinking about it, it was kind of like a blind dart on the board. But at the same time, when you're a junior in college trying to make a company, what isn't a dart on the board to some extent? Um, and then of course, with Houston and Austin, it was 250 round trip. The, the real margins were the kids who were going to Houston and Austin. Because at that point, the bus is already moving. The kids are already on the bus. So it was really, the, the real margins were the kids who were going to Houston and Austin. Because at that point, the bus, you know, as I said, it was already moving. So their double ticket price is what was really making those buses break even pretty early in the booking game. And that's where we started seeing decent profit year two is when things really started becoming. It wasn't feeling like a complete bootstrap operation. We were actually, things were in the green. Well, what an experience though. I mean, starting out in high school, working in a hotel, and then starting your own business and running it for three years um, while you're in school, that, that's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. But now, one of the things you're doing, uh, one of the many things, is you're working for a larger company. You've created a new division of I a have. company in Dallas called CR Edge. It's created and branded as a separate entity of Conreal. But would you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Um, so Conreal is a general contracting construction firm based out of Arlington. And it's more than just a construction company. It has a real estate division that's a little appraisal heavy on the commercial side. There's a program management division that focuses on like staff augmentation for some universities. And of course, there's a construction division. Innovation and technology, as we know, especially in this day and age, it's it's, you know, we're in virtual reality now. Our phones are listening to us. Alexas are a norm. It's, you know, things are definitely technology heavy. And so if you look at any construction company right now, if their bread and butter is, you know, 70% construction, eventually technology is going to start creeping up on the heels of being the bread and butter of construction companies. Because I feel like in every industry, it slowly is, whether it's automotive or, you know, railroad or whatever the case may be. And so I graduated from the University of Arkansas. I took a job with BNSF and it moved me to Houston. I was in BNSF for about two years as an account manager. And then once I applied and got accepted into a grad program at the U of H is when I left BNSF. And thankfully I could work out a hybrid schedule with Conrail to where I could be in school and balance being a project engineer. And so when I was originally brought on board, uh, I was a project engineer on a site, which basically is like your quality assurance guy. You're just making sure all the submittals are good. Your purchase orders are fine. 
you're especially the punch out when things start to get finished. You're you're that guy type of thing. You're kind of like what I was on the Hilton. I was the third guy. I wasn't the superintendent. I wasn't the product manager, but I was the guy that was just making sure everything's kind of coming together. So I started on and finished a job that finished for about six months. And after there was an opportunity to be a part of this technology division. There wasn't much guidance for this division. There really wasn't a vision. The executives knew that this division eventually would be something. So someone needs to kind of drive it. And so I was placed in this division as an assistant and there was a, a, a girl who was in charge for a while. And when she left, I kind of naturally just started spearheading certain opportunities and duties. And eventually I was like, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to brand it. I'm going to really take ownership of this. And they were just kind of like, okay, like, let's see. And so Conreal is of course at the helm, it is the construction company, but I thinking about branding and I guess I kind of took a page out of my hog ride book as far as branding really makes a brand come together as far as like how it rings. So the branding was CR edge, which I saw a big way to use a pun in it. Cause that way when you hear it in a room, it's like see our edge. And that's kind of the vision I wanted to have in it was I know that not only can technology make a construction site work more effectively internally, it also can reduce the need for communication externally to you know, shareholders, stakeholders, whatever the case may be, whether it's a public job and it's, you know, a county commissioner needs to be up to date or a university job and the director of procurement or, you know, the senior level wants to be up to date, you know, whether it's visualizations and things of that nature. And so in this division, we had BIM technology. BIM is building information modeling. It's so on a pre-con phase, it's kind of like an infrared scan rendering of a building. So that way, before walls go up, you know where the plumbing is going to go, where the water is going to go. So that way it reduces your amount of like clash detections. And so BIM basically helps the architect design the building. That way, once dirt's turned over, it really decreases the level of errors that could happen. That's what was already in the division. And we were doing that internally for our jobs. But I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot of other jobs where some companies might not have the person for that. So how do we outside sell that and not just be so in-house with it? Because there's construction everywhere. I was on campus. I saw you know, VCC signs, Navajold signs, there's everywhere, but like maybe VCC might not have a BIM person. Maybe, you know, they might need one contractually just for one part of, of the fraternity house or something. And so seeing the need for that and knowing that, okay, there's all these technologies coming around. How do I make it easier? I took that and started kind of replaying the construction sites I've been working in all my life and was like, okay, there's always these OAC meetings, which are like owner, architect, you know, um, meetings where it's like once a week and no one really wants to be in it because it's almost like a forced meeting. But what I get out of these meetings is like the owners come and walk the site and you have people coming in suits, putting on hard hats and they're sweating and they're like, man, you know, this is a lot, especially in Texas. And so I found a software company that we partnered with that creates virtual tours, kind of like a Matterport where you can like tour the inside of a building. But instead of just doing a, a one and done thing from a marketing standpoint for their marketing team, it's like, well, why don't why doesn't someone walk this building like once a week? And then you send that link out. And then the guy who had to drive, you know, across town and put a hard hat on, now he doesn't have to do that. Now he can open up his laptop at 3 a.m. and walk the site himself. And then he doesn't, you know, not saying he doesn't have to attend the meeting, but now the meeting isn't what's happened the last week. It's now like what's about to happen because we're already walking in here on the same page. We don't have to walk the site and I show you something and then we try to figure out a solution. We've already, you know, we've talked about, it, you've seen it on the links. So, we actually, impl I implemented that uh, towards the end of last year internally and 
got it up and running. And the first project, one of the first projects, not the first project, but one of the first projects that this was successful was Mullins. Conroe renovated the third and fourth floor for Mullins. We used a virtual tour platform. And with that, we were able to walk through and show the design team, the architects, as well as the stakeholders and shareholders for the board of the university on a weekly basis, the updates that were happening. So even though Mullins is the center of campus and they'll probably stop you there anyway, now if they wanted to see something that could be on their mind at 2 a.m., they didn't have to change the day around. They can cl- physically click on beacons and walk it. And it's a very, very like intuitive platform that we've implemented. So that's one of the services for CRH. And then as well as that, we also do droning, which a lot of other companies do. With drones, you can make really, really good time-lapse photos, really, really good aerial shots, especially big, large-scale projects. Long story short, it's coming together. CR Edge is, I, I had the tagline that I'm revamping, but it was kind of like bringing the job site to you. So instead of having to put on boots and put on a hard hat and walk a site, you can actually see the site on your computer. And to me, you'll see more of the site on your computer than what you see out there. Because at least to me, seeing OAC meetings, if you know a problem exists in a corner and you're with the guys or girls who could tell you that's a problem and kind of slap your hand for it, would you really show them that corner that transparent? Probably not. But when I'm brought onto a site neutrally, my job is to walk this site inch to inch. So if there's a problem, that's between you and your boss. But it, and that might come across as, well, why do I want that? But at the same time, the construction, I mean, if you have a problem, that could be a three-week problem. That can be a three-month problem. You could be sitting for half of a building there just because a water meter was messed up. So it's at least it, it kind of shows everybody's cards. And I think growing up in a construction realm at this point, what's the downside of that? How are you building out the business development side of this business? So the business development side of this business, it's so okay. With Hogride, my mindset was fail forward and fail fast. Um, kind of like move fast, break things. I knew fa- if anything you do, failing is inevitable, but it's kind of like, how can you at least not intentionally fail, but if you do fail, you can at least say, okay, I, like, I knew that was coming. So with Hogride, I feel like my business dev, I was throwing a lot of darts at boards and I was just kind of figuring out. This one's a little more structured. I, you know, with this one, I sat down, I created a full business plan, a marketing plan, a monetization plan, you know, a, a structure of how the different c- contractors that I have under me, you know, expectations, roles, and responsibilities. And so that was a good starting point just so to make sure my pencil is as sharp as I need it to be you know, maneuvering through the industry. But as far as business development, you know, it's it's kind of like the only constant is change. And so the only thing that I know, I know that CR Edge is not the only entity slash company that's has kind of like the same premise or vision that I have. But I do know that they're also in this world where, especially construction right now, there's so much weird technology stuff happening to where there's 3D printing on printing. There's like a, a company in Austin that there was a CNN article, they're 3D printing houses. It makes you wonder like how much are they really going to, you know, because I know that there's a labor drought. So it's just kind of like, man, this is not helping that at all. But, you know, on a, from a business development standpoint, it's it's definitely been more structured than Hogride and it definitely has a way better, clear vision. Execution always is a different story. <laughs> but at least with those two things, you know, you're going in a direction that you wanted to go. Are there any ways that you want to take this technology further? Definitely. And I think that's where it kind of gets a little hairy. I think people were already kind of steering away from getting a a trade skill, or at least their mentality was going more towards coding academies than like a trade school. But I think COVID really accelerated that now. 
And as far as where it's going, I definitely think I'm starting to hit the peaks of I'm maximizing the efficiency of as much as I can for a human. But I feel like even humans, we're kind of at a ceiling. We're not robots. We get tired. We have to sleep. Like So I feel like technology now is at the heels of humans to where it's like, how do we make this better without just straight up replacing the human? And I think we're very close to that. I, I mean, I don't want to see it, especially in the construction. I think it takes people to build buildings, especially for quality assurance. Where it's going, I definitely think there's going to be less people on machines for sure on construction sites soon. I think eventually those big cranes you see in the sky or even the small bobcat, I think those eventually will be, if they aren't already drone driven or just programmed and stuff. But, you know, it's going into a direction just like every industry to where humans are slowly getting replaced. I went to Walmart and there's more self-checkout lines than actual aisles now. I mean, it's faster. So as the consumer, you don't mind. But for the person who had a job, you're just kind of like, well, you're seeing it other places. They're maximizing efficiency by reducing, because I think not a human's in the way, but self-checkout's way faster than standing in a line. Byron, there's a number of students in the Walton College who are entrepreneurial as well. And they, when they hear your story, they, they want to do something similar. What advice do you have for them? My first immediate thought is you don't know what you don't know. And that's something that rang in my head when I was starting. You know, at one point with Hoggard, I was chalking sidewalks in front of Harmon at 2 a.m. Because I was like, well, lots of kids stand here. Lots of kids stand at Maple and Garland. That's free marketing. Like, I didn't know I couldn't do that until I did it type of thing. And so I would say, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, move fast and break things. And that's basically, you know, you can sit, I, you know, I could have easily sat for a week saying like, how can I market this? How can I market this? Or I could have just do it. And if it wasn't the best, at least I did something. So learn from experimentation. Right. Inaction is an action type of thing for choosing not to do it. So doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. If you have self-doubt or you're doubting yourself, it, it doesn't have much chance to go. But if you really surround yourself with people that are like-minded like you, or even not, if you just have this idea and you're really, really, really can see a value added not only to you, but other people that represent you or their their communities or cultures, whatever the case may be, you're only doing yourself a disservice by not at least trying. At the end of the day, not everyone's going to be a Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, but you're not going to get anywhere by just thinking and not doing. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C Podcast, and now Be Epic.